I guess, one of the advantages of small town. I mean, there was nine kids in class. And it was pretty sweet, actually, to have the, watch the teachers give, a pers- give personal comments about the kids, um, who they were and how they'd been. And you know, most of them had been there for four years. And, and uh, it was more than that, yeah. Yeah, it's, the school is K through 12, isn't it? Yeah. So it's obviously they're with them for a long time. And I don't know how many total in the school. 128 total in the school, yeah. So K through 12. So everybody kind of knows each other. It's hard to hide. Um, you know, unfortunately, Cody couldn't hide from being a rebellious little one in his, most of his high school and uh, was pretty... Um, seen as the rebellious one, I think, and, and uh, did some things to make sure he confirmed that well in town. And um, it was in everybody, so everybody knows it. There's no place to hide, like I say. There's, everybody knows everybody. So it was pretty sweet to hear the teachers um, be expressed pretty much um, unbelievable um, perspective of Cody in the last six months and change. So that was a uh, that was a sweet thing. Brought brought tears to my eyes. I'm sure to daddy's too, huh? You know, just to 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 see it end in the last six months, have it have it be real. I mean there was no there was no doubt in teachers' minds that um, this is a change change man. And that was a that was a sweet deal. So um, it was great to be over there. I Watch, uh, I think, I think do credit, you know. I'm not sure that you get credit for much else in high school, you know, so we'll give you credit for that. So They let him graduate. I wasn't sure they were going to. Actually, there was a while there because he kind of liked to ditch school or not show up or I don't know what all, but they weren't going to give him enough class days. But then they realized he was right on. It was sweet to listen to teachers say, you know, I'd come into class in the morning, here's Cody sitting there reading. And I was pretty confident that from talking to Cody and spent time, I was reading your Bible you know, a lot of times doing it. So, um, and the teacher's watching that and going, hmm, what's, what's really real here? You know, it's, what's different? So um, it, it was kind of a, it's past. I remember in the last six months you sharing at times that it was rough at times because kids would push and push your buttons and see what's real. And, um, you know, one time there was supposedly a psychology experiment where the girls just started hitting on him and spent the week just grabbing him and hugging him, kissing on him. And it was like, and Cody's going, help, David. I don't know what's going on. And, you know, he didn't know what was happening doing it. Um, and, he, you know, it was pretty, pretty sweet to, to see, well, that's, that's done now. It was a tough, tough six months in some ways, huh? But a good six months. Um, everybody's kind of going, Cody, you're, where's Cody? You know, where's, the, where's the kid who was most eager to go party? Um, so, praise God, I'm thankful for that. It was a sweet, sweet time. Let's pray. God, this week was a sweet time, and I thank you for that. Thank you that it's it's not just an academic exercise to pursue you, but 
this building of a relationship. I thank you for the privilege and blessing of being pursued by you. I thank you that you don't just cause us to wander around our whole lives hoping this may be true, but but you show yourself to be real in our lives and you long to be intimate with us in our lives. I thank you for that. I thank you for the joy and the peace and the assurance that comes from a relationship with you. I thank you that when we pursue you and go after you, that you you long to teach us as a loving father. What father doesn't want to teach a child? Doesn't want a child to grow and be blessed. And you're a perfect loving father. And I thank you for that. I thank you that you pursue us, prompt us. God, I ask you to teach teach us today what our perspective in this world should be and what our perspective of who we are in you as your children. Those are two things that are very wrong in perspective, wrong in understanding in our culture, whether it's in the big sea or not. They're pretty well warped. And God, I ask you to help straighten those out in our hearts so that we will see things from your perspective. Um, cause us not to realize that, or think and consider that this is just Paul with some, you know, he was kind of different, but that he was different than you call us to be. But you call us to be saints. You call us to be holy. You call us to be righteous. You call us to be pure and spotless. And, and I, I thank you that you've provided everything necessary for that. Please show us, God, because this is a, this is a truth that comes hard against the gospel that is taught. Please show us what that looks like and what that means so that we will go and cry out to you for perspective. Teach us from your word. For your name's sake, amen. Well, we're in Second Corinthians chapter 5. I uh, was talking to Steve last night about... 10.30 yard time or something we were having a discussion it's pretty sweet we have we have discussions once or twice a week about things and um, I'm really grateful for him sometimes there's an immediate uh, he thinks that I want him I, I just call him up to have him turn the computer on you know and I, it's not what I want when I call him I call him to talk to his heart you know sometimes he immediately he's very good he, you know he's a computer programmer but I think God God made him that from the womb, you know. I mean, the guy thinks and acts like a computer sometimes. He just, okay, here it is, and just starts pumping out stuff. No, 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 wait a minute, Steve. You know, let's talk from the heart here. But it was it was sweet talking to him. I uh, I, I I blamed him again for um, leaving me stuck with dealing with First and Second Corinthians. He goes, you know, David, you're going to have to get over blaming me for that, you know, at some point. <laughs> and, you know, I said. Yeah, I really don't. Um, I am absolutely confident of God's perfect timing and God's putting us here. So I have no, uh, I have no misunderstanding that, um, well, maybe once in a while that he bailed because he didn't want to deal with it, but that's actually not true. I, I'm really confident that God put us here for this time. You know, it, 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 it was a difficult... Um, when, when a year ago now, it's been about a year now, 
and when we first started thinking about going into First and Second Corinthians, these are books that people don't don't deal with. You know? um, you know, my my father-in-law, we were talking to him the other day, and, and my father-in-law has been a ordained minister, or pastor his whole life, and um, and that's that's quite a while now, you know, and uh, sixty-five years or something, you know, doing it, and and. Gene asked him what he thought, and he goes, "Man, why would you pick such a hard passage to teach from?" You know, um, and and I guess I I am um, I don't think it's no more righteous or no more or any more um, uh, godly to teach through the Bible. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily. Um, I think that going the Bible is all God's word, God's truth, and profitable for correction and reproof and training in righteousness. But to me, the, the avoidance of First and Second Corinthians seemed to be um, too strong of a statement that, well, this is tough and maybe God doesn't want to teach us from this. Let's go to someplace easier, someplace I like better or whatever. Because I, I can tell you, First and Second Corinthians were not my favorite books um, in Second Corinthians particularly, but I can tell you that um, the truths of these two letters have become um, have become powerful and, and positive in my life, um, and I'm truly grateful for them. And, and I, I honestly would have to say that, unless forced to, I don't know that I would have spent the amount of time I have in the last year in First and Second Corinthians. So, you know, even even Peyton struggles with it. You know? So. That's all right. That's a sweet struggle to hear. So, so 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is actually where we're at um, in, in sequence. There's a, there's a couple of perspectives here that I think are very important to, uh, to, to focus on um, that Paul is giving, and I think that they're both imperative. Thursday night we were talking about it. And, and Levi was expressing a, somewhat of a, of a awareness or a revelation to him about what our perspective is makes all the difference in the world, um, literally. And and I, you know, having a having a perspective of eternity can change everything. It's a, it, it it's absolutely true. Our perspective is is hugely important. And God knows that. He knows that's the way we're made, you know. It's kind of like having a job that you don't like, you know. But if your boss, and you don't really like it, and you kind of struggle with it, and it's kind of a pain, and this and that, and the other thing, or always something you don't like about it, and your boss comes up and goes, okay, if you stick it out for five years, I'll give you $5 million. How do all of a sudden those things, those little things that really bug you and make you want to quit and make you want to walk away, they kind of change perspective, don't they? You know, I mean, you kind of go, you know, when all of a sudden, oh, man, I don't really like this. Oh, no, this is sweet, man. I'm into this. This is a good thing. I'm glad to be here. You know, I'm glad to be about doing it. Same thing. Same thing you were doing that you were complaining about a week before. Now, all of a sudden, it's this is easy. This is sweet. This is good. I, I have to believe that was exactly Paul's. I mean, we have read time and time again about Paul's beatings about Paul's shipwrecks, about Paul's persecution, about the slander against Paul. You know, I mean, they, they he, he, time and time again, I mean, he says, 
Um, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. I mean, time and time again, he, he talks about tough times. Remember in the first chapter, you know, there was like 13 times in four verses where he talks about suffering and affliction. That's the life that he lived in when you, when you look at it. He was persecuted by the religious people. He was persecuted by his own people, by the Jews. Um, again, he was beaten. He was ultimately killed um, for his, for his uh, faith, for his belief in preaching the gospel. But yet, what does, what does he say um, in verse 16 of Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4? at the end of that because I think that's really probably the, the first part of chapter 5. Therefore we do not lose heart that though our outer man is decaying yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. What does he say? For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's the stick here for five years I give you five million bucks, you know, Right? I mean, it's completely out of perspective, he says. And, and why? I mean, the, he was consistently and continuously out of it. I mean, when you, you read on, and we'll come to some more places, and, and it's just amazing the things that he went through. I mean, he went through beatings and, and stonings. I mean, they stoned him to death and left him there. Uh, left him for dead. His own brothers and sisters left him for dead. Thought he was done. And they stoned him outside of town. I mean, then he got... Woke him up and he goes stumbling into town. Started preaching again. Like, you know, they said, you got to get out of here. You know, this, I mean, Paul was continually after it and getting beat up for it. But he says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. The purpose that I'd like you to consider, because it's, it's what Paul goes on to talk about here, is that we have an eternal perspective. What is our perspective in life? Um, it's very easy to get focused on here and now. It's very easy to get focused on what's right in front of our face. It's very easy to see life from how, does this, how is this going right now in this day and how will it look in the next week and how will it look in the next month and what's my, what's my retirement going to be like and what's my job security or, or you know, whatever it may be. But, but our end game is, is still within this life. And Paul says it's very, very important that we realize that we are to be otherworldly now. And our perspective of life is to be completely otherworldly. And, and how do we gain that? How do we get that? Um, you know, I've heard, the, uh, I've heard the statement growing up that, that, I mean, how to go, Gene? I'm sure you heard it too. You know, it, it's not good to be of so... Other otherworldly minded that you're of no earthly good or something like that. I think it's a very perverse statement. Is that is that heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good? Well, that's a statement from the devil. That is not a statement from God. Um, the truth is, we cannot be truly heavenly minded enough. We cannot have our perspective truly uh, on eternity enough. Okay. Um, and we need to see it as that. That that's really what this ending. This is only momentary light affliction. And I mean, we haven't even touched what Paul went through. 
we, you know, we haven't even began to be persecuted as Paul. Now, in the last weeks, we've talked about the, the reality that is stated time and time again by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter, by all of the writers, that if we are truly speaking the truth, if we are truly unwilling to compromise in, in, in speaking the truth of the gospel in the Bible, we will become against. Okay? Period. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. Okay? That's a reality. That's not a maybe. Um, and, and again, he was not ever in inferencing or referencing that. He was never talking about the people who, do not, who deny God, the pagans living in this world. He was always talking about the big C. He was always talking about the church of the time. Um, and that's still true today. And, and we need to maintain that perspective because otherwise... And, and Paul tells us time and time again, so did Jesus, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if it looks like this. I do not want you to be surprised if it looks like this, okay? And, and why does he say that? Because it's going to be very surprising to us that the people who claim to serve the same God we do rally against us. And that's going to be difficult to deal with. So, he, time and time again, he tells us that that's going to be... So, our perspective needs to be that we, that we live for eternity, that we speak truth, that we, that we stand for what we know is true, that we don't compromise, and we, and, we do, and we do not ever do it to please people, to get the glory of men. We do not ever do it to, so that we will not get, have people come against us. Um, that doesn't mean we purposely... We don't need to try have people come against us. We need to be loving, compassionate, gracious, gracious patient, merciful, um, long-suffering. We need to love. We need to lay down our lives for our brethren. But we are still going, the effect is still going to be come against. So, the perspective needs to be otherworldly. There's a couple, I, I want to read a this week was a, a sweet week. One of the reasons it seems like my sweetest weeks are when I'm just in, engaged and in, in absorbing all over the place in the New Testament. It seems to be those are some of the sweetest weeks when God's just speaking from all different books and, and different authors um, and speaking the same thing. And I could spend the next several hours reading the same perspective from different books all over the New Testament, particularly... Um, but there's just a couple that I would like because I, there's the other perspective that is very important to understand, that is critical and essential to understand. In, in chapter 5, verse 17, there's, he makes a statement. He says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's what the word creature means. He is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You guys, that is the gospel. That is a profound statement and do not diminish it. And, and, and this is not just a single statement pulled out and says, well, I don't know what that means. That means exactly what it says. And, and, and it's reinforced throughout Scripture. Let me, let me read a couple of others before we read 2 Corinthians 5. And again, you'll have to excuse me because I, I know I'm going to have a hard time 
limiting which ones we read because there's a whole bunch of them. Um, how about Ephesians? Let me read Ephesians chapter 2, the first few verses, the first 10 verses, okay? And, and again, whichever way you can most, most um, seriously focus on what's being said, because this isn't David speaking, this is the Bible speaking as I read it. Okay? This is God speaking as I read it, not the Bible, but God. And this is the Word of God, hopefully illuminated truth by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So I would put yourself in a state where you listen intensely and seriously to what's said in the next couple things that we read because this is, we, we tend to read over them because we already have a preconception about what this is supposed to look like. Okay? It's a very, very dangerous thing. Um, this week, this week we, uh, speaking to Steve earlier this week, we were, we were having a discussion and, and there's a profound difficulty in our culture of communicating truth because we are very biblically literate. We are very literate about the words that are written down in here, the statements that are made in this Bible, okay? As a culture, we are very biblically literate. Even if you're not church, you, you can quote the Bible about things, okay? The problem is that they're given wrong definitions. And the devil is, is, has been very, very sly um, in, in his deception. And one of the schemes of the devil, I believe, in the last, you know, since, since 1500, prior to 1500, see, the populace didn't have a, a, a Bible in their hand. Um, they, they, they couldn't, they didn't, they weren't biblically literate. Their dependency on what the Bible said was completely based on the hierarchy of the church. So, Satan could very easily corrupt the hierarchy of the church, and they could pretty much teach whatever they wanted to teach and say, this is what God said. This is what God says. And, and that you didn't have a biblically literate populace that would go, no, wait a minute, I don't see it saying that. Or, That's contrary to what this says. Okay? And so that some of the profound heresies and just extreme extrapolations of the, of the Catholic Church, we wonder how they could come about. How could they get so far off? Things that are completely unbiblical. Well, the, the populace didn't have that. Now, was there still the Holy Spirit? Yes. Was there still? But, but it was easy for Satan to pull his scheme off by having those few people in a position of power speak untruth and false doctrine. And people believed it as doctrine and as sound. Because the doctrine of the church, of the Catholic Church, became stronger in importance and power than the Bible. That's like the Mormon church today. That's the same way, that the Book of Mormon takes precedence over the Bible, even though they would say their foundation is in the Bible. It is not. Their foundation and what supersedes the Bible is the Book of Mormon. And the Bible is interpreted by the Book of Mormon, um, which is extreme heresy. So, after 1500, when the Bible was really translated into the language of the man, common man, and people began to have Bibles, I, I believe the scheme of the devil really started changing, particularly in this country. In this country, um, in, in, in the last 200 years, I mean, when we founded this country, if anybody had any literature at all, it was a Bible. Okay? That, that families had Bibles. Okay? And this, this is a... It was, it, that was common. In fact, we were, we were so set on making sure 
that we could know what the Bible says as the common man so that we were not led astray by powers to be, whether it be the king as head of the church, whether it be the pope as the head of the church, whether it be whoever, okay? That we had a, we had a relationship with God that was vital and real and we could know truth and we could read. We, our education system was really based on that. You know, we set up an education system to teach people to read so they could read the Bible, okay? We used the Bible as a reader, okay? We even used the Bible as, as a teaching tool to teach people to read. It was the most common book that most families had again, you know, was the Bible. So now, now the scheme of things changes a little bit because now you have a populace that is, prop, that is by far the most biblically literate, pertaining to the New Testament particularly, but the most biblically literate ever on the face of the earth. So now you've got this populace of people who, have, who, who know what this says, Okay? The knowledge of God and the knowledge of the Bible is that, well, let's be very careful because the knowledge of God and knowledge of the Bible does not bring salvation. Okay? Period. It does not bring salvation. What did we read last week in John 5? It says, it says, because you believe that in searching the scriptures you would find eternal life. But they didn't. Okay? Knowledge of God does not bring does not necessitate salvation. Does it take a knowledge of God to come to, to a saving faith in Him? Yes, it does. Is a, is a knowledge of God a bad thing? Absolutely not. But it does not, it does not mandate that you are saved just because you have the correct intellectual doctrine or theology. Okay? That's a very... I ask you to absorb that because that's really not how we think subconsciously in this country. We believe that a correct intellectual understanding, um, a correct prayer, a correct statement of faith um, leads to salvation. Um, and that's not true. That's not true. Um, that's not what leads to salvation. In this country, I believe that what Satan's scheme began, because if, if I sat up here and, and began to speak uh, or, or taught doctrine or taught theology that was not backed or based in this Bible that was distinct from it, okay? I would certainly hope and I would expect and I would think that there would be a whole bunch of people going, really? That's not what I see. It says, David, we need to look at this. We need to... That's not what I see it saying. I don't understand. And there would be a questioning because you guys hopefully, prayerfully longingly after my part, are biblically literate and becoming more and more biblically literate. So, if, if I was to speak things that, that, if I say, well, Jesus, Jesus really didn't raise from the dead. You know, I mean, you know, he, that, that's just what people, some people have taught, but he really didn't raise from the dead. I would hope there would be a, a storm to the front or hands raised or, or rocks thrown that, that, that would say, wait a minute, my Bible says Jesus raised from the dead. You know, what, what do you mean he didn't raise from the dead? This, um, but unfortunately, and that, that's, a, that's a good thing on the one hand. The tragedy of it is, is that, so now what does the devil do? And, and, and I will say this, now the devil redefines the terms. So now we speak the right language and say the right things, but our definitions are wrong. And, and, and we, we define in our definitions, and, and we do the same as people have always done. We do not define them by the Bible. We define them by our culture. We define them by what men say. We define, you know, things like um, 
the fruit of your, you know, the, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of your ministry. What is the primary fruit we call? Well, getting people to say the prayer. Well, show me that in the Bible. You know? I mean, there, there, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that we just accept as, as common fact. You know, should there be the fruit of the Spirit? Should there be the fruit of a righteous life? Should there be the evidence of the Holy Spirit in you? Yes. You know, these are, these are right terms. Unfortunately, they're defined incorrectly. Okay? So, I would ask you guys to, to, to always, not just now, but to always consider your definitions. And always be open to having your definitions, your, your statements and your words and your theology and your doctrine defined, defined by the Bible. Not by your preconceptions. What is very difficult about having wrong definitions, what is very, very difficult about having wrong definitions is that there is no way that me saying something contrary, even if I spoke absolute truth about what the Bible says, you have 10 years of preconditioning about what it really means. Who wins? The wrong understanding. Okay? Wins. Okay? So I would ask you to be very, very careful about hearing a definition distinct or hearing an understanding of theology or doctrine distinct from what you believe and throwing it out because that's, that's just what I was taught. Well, we have to be careful that in this culture, let, let's, be, let's be very very clear about something. If we are so biblically literate, if our doctrine and theology is so correct in the big C church, right? Why is there no distinction between pagans and Christians? And there virtually is not. Remember? Go back to the, 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 the most recent, and I believe, very accurate studies from the way that they were put together you know, in, in, among pagans, the divorce rates t- among among atheists is 21 percent. Among the rest of the populace is 24 percent. Among born again Christians is 27 percent. When you uh, when when asked, there was only 35 percent that in the last month had not blatantly and willingly told a lie that of those who call themselves born a Christian. We're not talking even the big C here, okay? The big C is one thing. There's 79% of the people in this country that claim to be part of the big C, the big church, the Christian church, okay? Now, none of us are foolish enough to even consider that to be close to reality, okay? We're talking about those aren't just of the big church, many denominations, multiple, whatever, calls themselves Christians because that can be a certain hodgepodge. But we're talking about those who call themselves born again, okay? Of those... Only 35%. That means 65% had willingly lied. Reasons given? We don't want to offend somebody. We don't want to cause somebody to hurt feelings. God, it's just a little thing and God doesn't really care about it. Or God has already forgiven my sins. Those are the reasons given. Jesus died for my sins so it really doesn't matter. Okay? When you, when you look at, when you look at the, those who call themselves born again, you look at pagans, again, over 50%. On both things, from both spectrums of people, over 50% are still in addiction to pornography, are still in addiction to gluttony and food, are still in addiction to multiple things. No, just not distinct at all from the culture. Okay? So if we're so doctrinally correct and we're so theologically sound, why are we so miserably failing? Why are we so miserably failing to produce distinction in human beings? What did that verse just say that we just read? 
Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away and new things have come. Should that born-again person look different? Yes. Very much so. And this is not a... And and unfortunately, even though we, we know these verses, we get very callous to it and we really don't hear it. Okay? We really don't hear it. Because what do we say? The grace of God means that he overlooks our sin. Oh no, we don't preach that from the pulpit because that would be wrong theology. Right? Where do you find that in the Bible, David? That doesn't say it. Nobody would preach that. But subtly, I infer that with my life. I infer that with my teaching. God overlooks our sin. The grace of God means that he has rose-colored glasses. Our sins are forgiven. Right? So, Jesus died for all of our sins, so God doesn't really see our sins. So, now where does that leave me? We've talked about this a lot of times, but I do not fear overstating because I think that it is very, very important. A gospel that says that I just try my best is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? A gospel that says that I just, I just try my best to be good because as long as I'm in this body, I'm still under the bondage of sin. As long as I'm still in this body, I'm still under the effects of sin. And I have no choice in that. So, someday when I get my new body and, and I'm in heaven, then it, then it will have, the redemptive power of God will have a profound effect on me and I will have a perfect body. But as long as I'm in this body, I can't do anything about it. That's just the way I am. That's a lie. That is not the gospel. That is not what the gospel says. So, again, let me, let me read another Ephesians chapter 2, okay? Starting verse 1. And, and listen carefully because this is really clear. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Where is the past tense word purposely used? In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Is this the spiritual warfare? That says it pretty clearly. Okay. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh. That isn't just sexual lust. That's, that's, a, that's an innate desire. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. But listen, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he, with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is not eschatology. This is not end time. This is not after Jesus comes and rules and reigns on the earth. This is now. In order that in the ages to come, now this is not talking about this is something in eschatology after Jesus comes to rule and reign. He says in the ages to come, that is the times that we're living now. This is Paul writing, saying that in the, time, in the ages to come, the time that we live in now, in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Okay? He, that God desires to show that in this age. We don't have Jesus 
here. Jesus isn't walking around here in his, in his literal body form. Okay? By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? First Peter. Actually, you know where to start. Let's go to Second Peter. Second Peter. Uh, chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to this. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of a divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. This is talking about a new creature. This is talking about a new creation, divinely Empowered. Let's look at Second uh, Peter chapter four, or chapter three. I'm sorry. There's only Second Peter chapter three. There's not a four. This is a this is a this is a sweet place too. Okay, he's talking. Let me just read it because it's worth reading. This this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up. Stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He did it too. He repeated himself. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days, he's talking about the last days, and, and Paul back in Corinthians is, is talking about the same thing. He's talking about end times and he's talking about what it'll look like afterwards. Okay? that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with a mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Okay, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And we can talk about that in terms of eschatological reasoning. So it's long-term whichever decade or whichever millennium or whichever hundred years, it's also very, very relevant to our lives. Okay? When is God coming? It's just another day and God doesn't really care what I do today or how I live. Um, because where is, where is his coming? Where is God? Okay? And, and what he says about that is very important to us. Okay? All right? What he says about that is very important. For when, for when they maintain this, it, may, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of waters by water. Okay? For when they maintain that where is this God? Where is God? God doesn't really care. God overlooks my sin and doesn't care about my sin. God doesn't really care about the, the intricacies and intimacies of my life. Okay? 
but wait a minute, for when they maintain this, when they think this way, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at the time, through which the world, the same water that he created, destroyed, through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded by water. But the present heavens, but the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Okay? Remember this God you're saying doesn't pay attention and doesn't care. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise. And in this point, it's, it's, slow, it's judgment that he's talking. It's the promise of judgment. Okay? The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, now listen to what he says. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But, ac- but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. God doesn't care? Doesn't care how we live our lives? Spotless and blameless. You know, he's not kidding. Let's look at, let's go back to 2 Corinthians. There's, a whole bunch I would love to read, but let me read, let me jump ahead at one chapter, okay? And just read a little, little, little section, okay? He's talking in, in, in chapter 6, the end of chapter 6. There's a very apt, strong description that comes from multiple quotes in the Old Testament about a new, te- a new covenant relationship with God about how God will establish a new covenant with us, right? We have the old covenant, remember? It was under the law, and the law of sin and death. Um, And it did not bring life, it brought death. We're under the new covenant, and the new covenant brings life, okay? It's a radical distinction in the covenants. And God described this new covenant that was going to happen with the coming of the Messiah. God described that time and time again in the Old Testament. Paul, at this point, brings together a few of those quotes and says... In verse 16, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? He's talking about setting ourselves apart in this world, that we are distinct and we are different, that we are new creations that we, and we cannot have fellowship with light and darkness. For we are the temple of the living God, he says, just as God said. We are the temple of the living God now. And what does God say? This is, these are quotes from God in the Old Testament. I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst, the midst of the pagans, and be separate, says the Lord. 
and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. That's a, those are radical promises. This is God saying this to us. Okay? This is... I, I, what more could we dream of? I will dwell among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, because of this, therefore, having these promises, the promises we just read, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now that's a mouthful. God does not care about our life. Oh, and, 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 and our, we are—we just try our best, and it doesn't matter that we're somewhat of an outhouse. He says we're the temple of the living God, and therefore having these promises that He will be our God, that He will be a Father to us, that He will walk among us. Okay, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh, all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now. That does not go over well today. Okay? I didn't say that. Do not quote David on that. Okay? I just read the Bible. Okay? This is not David preaching something. I read the Bible. Okay? Do not go away. Oh, David said this. David did not say that. God said that in the Bible. Okay? You need to be very clear. If you disagree and you struggle with that, Take it up with him. I would be glad to help you take it up with him and be glad to talk to you about it. But God said that, not me. Okay? This is, a, this is not a doctrine that is made up. This is, this is a biblical principle about what it means to be born again. Let's read chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Okay? For we know that if the earthly tent, that's his body, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is talking about what our perspective in life is to be, okay? We've got this body which houses our soul, our being, okay? It's temporal. It's going to go back. It's, it's called mortal. That means having death in it, leading to death going to die. This body is going to die. Okay? For we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. Now, I won't go into the naked part, but, but it, the grown part is one that we misunderstand. We, in our culture, relegate, and, I, and I'll make this statement, and I would love to read about 20 places 
that, that back this up. I would challenge you to go after it. Because we talk about the struggle and groaning in this nature as struggling and groaning with sin. Okay? And we talk about a dichotomy that is within us. It says, on the one hand, I am a born-again man and a son of God. On the other hand, I am a man of flesh who has no choice but to sin, who is stuck in the bondage of sin. And that is the groaning and the struggle that we have in the flesh. Let me just say this boldly. The Bible does not say that. Okay? The Bible does not talk about our struggling and our groaning as being with sin as a born-again believer. Okay? The body talks, it talks about us. Does Paul ever talk about his struggle and his groaning? And, and let's not talk about a misinterpretation. You need to be very careful. This is, there is one place that is used to validate this whole argument and complete argument. That's the second half of Romans 7. Okay? That second half of Romans 7, taken as a justification or, or an example of Paul, a born-again believer, struggling with sin, goes completely contrary to the rest of his epistles. Okay? Nowhere else, nowhere else in the epistles does Paul say, I'm in bondage to sin and struggling with sin. Paul's groaning and Paul's struggling is, is with, with being misunderstood, with being persecuted, with being come against with the body struggling to understand, not with sin. Paul does not talk anywhere else in his epistles about struggling with sin. And I'll say it that boldly. Chapter, again, the second half of chapter 7 is Paul speaking, and he states it very clearly if you read it in context. He says, I am speaking to you who know the law, who have tried to be righteous before God in the law. You know what this looks like. I know what this looks like, he says, because that's a life I lived in as a Pharisee my whole life. And it looks futile. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I can't do. Who will set me free from this body of sin? Thanks be to Christ Jesus. Okay? Again, Paul is speaking in the present tense in that, in that section because that is, a, that is a way in the Greek that you use tenses in order to accentuate a point. Do you really believe? There's one other statement Paul says, I, the greatest of sinners. Really? So when Paul was writing the epistles about purity, about the things we just read, about setting ourselves aside, about being spotless and blameless coming to the Lord, Paul was the greatest of sinners? Paul was in bondage to sin in his life? Paul was living in immorality. Paul was living in deception. He was living in untruth. That, that's hard, a little bit hard to swallow, isn't it? He was being divinely led and empowered by God while he was living in sin? No. No. Again, Paul was using the present tense. Paul, the greatest of sinners, the most unworthy because he had persecuted the Christians. Was he, st he, he explains why he was the most unworthy and the greatest of sinners. Because he was killing Christians. Was he doing that when he was writing the epistles? Was he doing that after the road to Damascus? To Damascus? Was, was it on the road to Emmaus? I'm sorry. Was he, was he doing that after his conversion? No, he was not. That was not his lifestyle. That was not what he was doing. And Paul understood he was set free. Again, if you read Romans 6, all it talks about is being set free from the bondage of sin. 
All Romans 8 talks about, after Romans 7, it talks about being free, the resurrection power at work in us. Okay? Anywhere else in the epistles, Paul talks about the groaning being the encumbrances of this mortal dying body, not sin. Okay? So, and, and you can say, well, that sounds, that, that's David. Yes, I just spoke a lot. Read the New Testament. Read the epistles. It becomes very, very evident. It's evident right here. Okay? For indeed, while we, were in, while we are in this tent, for we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Now, we read the first chapter. Remember, we read, I said, you guys need to think about this. And through this whole letter and epistle, he, he, he sets forth, he says, Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, who has sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Okay? That's chapter 1. Now here it is again. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. What does the Spirit as a pledge mean? That's a, that, that's a very important understanding. Okay? The, Spirit, the Spirit of God is, is, is not the Spirit of God, the supernatural manifestation of God. The real manifestation of God. Do we believe in the Trinity? Do we believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one, are three in one? If you don't, I'd love to talk to you. They are one. And equality, although distinction, okay? So the Holy Spirit, what does Jesus say? And what do we all believe with our mouths? We believe that the eternal nature of God the expression of God in the Holy Spirit, the power of God in the Holy Spirit. Is, is the Holy Spirit eternal or temporal? Eternal. Is, 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 is the Holy Spirit limited to this life or is He eternal in nature? He's eternal in nature. He says that He gives us a, someday in the res, when we are resurrected from this body, okay, we will be entirely and totally eternal without the limitations of this mortal dying body. Okay? What does he say? I give you my spirit as a pledge, as a down payment. In other words, I put immorality, immortality, excuse me, I put immortality in you. Okay? So your nature, your new creature, this new creation, becomes one with immortality. Okay? Now, he says he, he gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as the beginning of our immortality. That's a, that's a radical concept, you guys. And you need to realize that, that this is, as a born-again believer, that's what happens. Okay? That he gives us his spirit as a pledge, as a down payment. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord. Okay? Again, the eternal perspective. 
Work for five years and I'll give you five million bucks. Okay? The eternal perspective, the long-term perspective. We have, if, if our perspective, is it now in this world or is it forever? Therefore, always be of good courage in knowing that while we're at home in this body, while we still have this mortal body in us, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. But we are absent from the Lord. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, also, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, whether absent from this body and present with the Lord or at home in this body, to be pleasing to Him. For we... This next verse, I would ask you to... take home and think about. Because this is a very important comment and we don't have time and hopefully next week we will talk about this. But this, again, I'm going to read here, okay? I'm going to read what the divinely inspired Word of God says, okay? Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You hear that? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed. That's a big word. Recompensed for his deeds in the body in this mortal body, in this mortal life, according to what he has done, according to what each man has done, small he, according to what each man has done, whether good or bad. Now, what's it, what, what, is, what is the response of that? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Again, this is not David. I'm reading. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Should this truth that we just read in chapter 10 produced the fear of the Lord in us? Yes. That's what he said. What does that mean? How does that look? How does that... How is that... You know, we can say this is... Because the word here, judgment seat, is bima. Okay? Um, It's used one other time in Romans 14 as as a judgment. The word judgment is used a lot. This word judgment is actually... The judgment seat is actually taught, it, it, all it means really is a step, a step up, an elevated step. And it, it become a platform where, where a tribunal judged from. Okay? Judged good or bad. Judged whether things were right or things were wrong. And made a judgment call from. Okay? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Okay? Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. 
Here it is again. The death and resurrection that we participate in of Jesus. Okay? For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves. That's us. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh previously, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. Well, I don't know how that goes with verse 10. Think about it. Not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, therefore, and this is a huge one. What are we? We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating mankind, entreating through us. As as though God... We are the ones that God is calling people to himself through. We, as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If I could, if I could beg anything of you, it would be that. I mean that. I beg you on behalf of Christ, Be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is... The more you read this, after about the 20th or 30th time, every aspect of this chapter becomes real. and became real, more and more real to me. It's not just redundancy and it's not just fill-in speech it's it's very pertinent and very relevant I'm, and I'm sorry if we're just touching on a t- few aspects of it but therefore if any man is in Christ he is a new creature the old things have passed away behold new things have come this is the reality of being born again let's let let's we need to be There's one more thing that I'll throw at you because, again, we define our terms incorrectly. The Bible is... We have a false understanding that we decide we want to follow God, we want to come to God, we want to know about God. So, we become saved. We say the prayer and we're saved and then we become disciples. Let me just just say that most often in the Bible... That order is reversed. Okay? The Bible talks about people becoming disciples, followers of Jesus. Okay? And to, so that they come to know Him and they come to realize that this is a God worthy to be served. This is a God worthy to be feared. That I have no hope of reconciliation with this God outside of Jesus Christ. This is a process that takes discipleship. It takes becoming a follower of Jesus to come to. What was God doing with the people when he brought them out of Israel? 
Was he not making disciples of them? Followers of him? Were they saved? No. Most of them died in the wilderness. Most of them died in the wilderness. Few were saved. But they were disciples. God was causing them to be followers of him. To know him. To see that he was worthy to be served. In spite of that, they still did not become saved. There's a, there's a tragic process in our culture in that we, we immediately believe, through our misunderstanding, that we want to get somebody to say the prayer and then they'll begin a journey. That's a misunderstanding of God. God would want us to pursue him. If God is calling, God is calling. The Holy Spirit is revealing. The Holy Spirit is revealing truth. The Holy Spirit is teaching us who God is, that he's worthy to be served. The Holy Spirit is teaching us about sin. In our culture, we have no need for a Messiah. We don't even understand what sin is. The discipleship process of coming into a, to become a follower of Jesus, time and time again, what did Jesus say? He had 3,000 disciples that were following him. Were they born again? Were they saved? You know, most of them walked away, right? What did he say? He had, he had 3,000 disciples following at one point, and what did he do? He says, unless you're willing to eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And they all left. Okay. They were called disciples. They were called followers of Jesus. It's, it's, it's not just a matter of semantics and timing. It's a very important thing, because I will state most people who become disciplers and begin a discipling, begin following Jesus, do not come to the point of being born again. Okay? And you must be born again. Okay? But most people, just like the people coming out of Egypt, most did not enter the promised land. Few did. And that was after a process of getting to know this God. What did Joshua and Caleb say? Say, Yes, they're giants. Everybody else, the ten others said, no, they're giants, they're huge, this is too much, we will die. Their, their cities are fortified, these guys are trained warriors, these guys are giants, these guys are armored. These guys, we can't do it. Right? We can't give everything. We can't lay our life down for God. That's just too much. What did Joshua and Caleb say? God will deliver us. God will deliver us. We know this God. This God has shown himself to be faithful. This God has shown himself to provide for us. This God has shown himself to be true to his word. God will deliver us. They entered the promised land. Them and their families. Okay? They entered the promised land because they were willing to lay their lives down based on the nature and character of this God they claimed to serve. Most who pursued Jesus are not willing to do that. Most disciples never get to that point. And tragically, what happens, and why it's not just a matter of semantics and timing, tragically what happens is that most people come, come to God and say, well, I, I want to know Jesus. I'm willing, to, I'm willing to devote some time to this. I'm willing to go after it. I'm willing to devote my life. I'll, you know, I'll give 10%, 20% of my life. I mean, now stop for a second before you get too stern on yourself. How many of us really give, devote 20% of our waking hours to the pursuit of God. Okay? 20% of our money, 20% of our life, 20% of our purpose. That's a minor, and yet, did Jesus ever say 20% is going to get her done? Never. Okay? 
Does God call us on that point? Yes. Come and find out who I am. Come and find out from where you to be served. Tragically, we say, you're born again. Really? On 20% commitment? And that's not what the Bible ever says. The Bible says you're born again on 100% death. When you die to yourself. That's 100%. Not 90, not any. So what happens within the system that we call the church, you're born again. What do you do? By the time you get to about 50% commitment, now just stop for a minute. 50% commitment. Okay? 50% of your time. 50% of your effort. 50% of your thoughts. 50% of your money. Devoted to the kingdom of God. Okay? By then, you're an elder. Okay? By then, you're, you're, you're a mature believer. You're held up as a mature believer. Have you ever come to a 100% commitment? Not necessarily. That's tragic. And so, what happens? There becomes no need. Because here you are in a place where you believe that you are pleasing to God. Where you believe you have the power of God. There's supposed to be all these things that happen. The fruit of the Spirit. The supernatural power of God. The Spirit of God. The gifts of the Spirit working through you. All these things are supposed to be happening. So what do we do? Well, we better start showing these things and we figure out ways to do it. Okay? We figure out ways to look like a Christian. We figure out ways that, that fit. And, and so within the, the big C, we've got these, all these people that are trying to act and like the power of God is truly at work in their lives. Because they were lied to and said, you're born again. Jesus said that you, you, you see who I am. You count the cost. You see who I am. and it, 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 Being a disciple of Jesus, is an, that's a sweet place to be. That's a place where, where God has called you. That's why he says, be sure of your calling. Be sure of your calling where you're called. Because the, it will get, the necessity is you get to a point where you lay your life down for Jesus Christ. Period. And then you are born again. You become a new creature. Old things passed away. Okay? Most people who call themselves disciples of Jesus never get there because we lie. It's a tragic lie in our society because Jesus said it's everything. It's not 10%. It's not desire. It's not I want to. It's everything. And how, do, how are we willing to do that until we become a disciple of Jesus and get to know that this man's worthy of this? This man is worthy of my life. This man's trustworthy. I can absolutely stand in faith and trust this God to do what he says he's going to do. I can put the totality of my life in his hands. And he is able to take that and, 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 and bless me and protect me. To feed me. To clothe me. To shelter me. If I seek first and absolutely in the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I can believe that. So that my perspective can be otherworldly, not defense of my own needs, not defense of my own happiness, not defense of my own security. But I can give those things up and trust those in the hand of this God that I claim to serve. And I can lay my life down and die to myself and become born again and become a new creature. You must be born again, Jesus said. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many become disciples, but few follow God into the promised land. 
This is a, this is a universal thing. It's, it's different than what we teach. I could, I could go on and on. I won't. Um, to be continued. God, I thank you that you've provided everything. You've provided everything to live a godly life pleasing to you. You've provided everything that when you return you can find us spotless and blameless. And anything else is unacceptable. That you have, that, that your whole, the effort on the cross, the death and resurrection, were to set us free from the bondage of sin and death. That now we have the promise, the down payment of eternal life living in us. And we become new creatures with eternal life empowering us through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us as born-again new creatures. I thank you for that. That's a profound thing. You don't call us to holiness and then say, well, just try. You call us to holiness and say, and I've provided everything necessary for obedience. And we don't do it in order to please you. We do it because you are God. We serve you. We submit to you. We fall down on our faces before you because you are God. And we, every man, will be judged according to his deeds, whether good or bad. That's an important understanding to come to. Where, do, where does our relationship with you fit in that? God, I thank you for your truth. It is so big. I thank you that you, when you talk about this life, this born-again life, this relationship with you, that it's not just someday when we die. That it's not just about a future time after we're dead or when you come back and, to rule and reign on this earth. That it's now. That it's relevant actually now. And I thank you for that. I thank you that we don't have to wait to have an intimate relationship with you, Father. That we don't have to wait to have you walk among us. We don't have to wait to have you be a dad, a loving father to us until we die. That can happen now. I thank you that, that you set us free from the bondage of sin and death, from the, the ruler of this domain, the ruler and the prince of this world who holds everyone in bondage outside of the freedom that you set us in. I thank you that you set us free to serve you. I thank, thank you that you set us free to honor you. I thank you that you choose some reason in some way to manifest yourself through us. That your glory, that the reality of Jesus Christ and the reconciliation that you desire for this world in the relationship with you is expressed through us. Through your glory being reflected in us. I thank you for your mercy and your compassion and your grace, your unmerited favor towards us. This is nothing we do. This is not something we earn. This is not something we're better than others for. This is a free gift. This is the truth and Satan has lied to us about this gift and said, no, we're still trapped. We're still in bondage and there's no way out until you die. That's a lie. God, I ask you to share us, to show us the truth so that our perspective 
are children of you. Our perspective is children of the living God. We'll change. will be your perspective. You will understand who we are and what we are and what we're living for. God asks us to change our temporal perspective and cause it to become eternal. Cause it to become otherworldly. Cause it to realize that this is about eternity in this brief moment. Is a brief flash. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your mercy and kindness. I thank you for being our intermediator between God and us. Amen.